the past. And the reason why I say that's different is because it's different. <laughs> it's different for me. It's not necessarily what we normally address in a specific way uh, on Sunday nights. A lot of times, like, what we talk about, I kind of reach into different pockets of life and different applications, you know, apply different ways and maybe hit everybody in a different place depending on where you are. But um, tonight's going to be really specific. And so uh, as soon as soon as you say, we're going to talk about addressing hurt, how did you... Uh, how you deal with your hurts from the past, um, a, a couple of things like pop up, all right? Um, one thing that can happen that I kind of want to make sure we're not dealing with tonight is that um, this is not about, you know, um, those like hurt feelings kind of moments, you know, when, you know, somebody walks into a room and they like shake everybody's hand but yours, and your feelings are so hurt, you know? Or a bunch of people go see a movie and you didn't get invited, you know, like, no. I'm talking about that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. And let's just be, let's all be real honest. As humans, we are very prone to, uh, we, we like a little bit of drama, okay? Um, we kind of we like a crisis. We kind of, you know, we kind of like those dramatic moments. We kind of like it when our feelings are hurt. We kind of like to whine about it a little bit and whatever. And I'm not saying that when you don't get invited somewhere that that's not supposed to hurt your feelings. That's fine. That's just not what we're going to talk about tonight. Okay? So first of all, we need to lay aside any any of our, like, tendencies toward drama. Let's just put those aside for a second. Okay? Um, another thing that, that I, I kind of was thinking about when we talk about hurts is that it's really something that guys do not want to talk about. Ever. You know? It's so funny because you can ask a girl how something made her feel, and she'll just she'll roll for like 30 minutes. You ask a guy, and his response would be like, he'll shrug his shoulders. But it's not because he has no feelings, okay? It's because we just don't sit there and process it and think about it and come up with a list of how it made us feel, and, and then the next day we felt this way and whatever. We just, guys just don't really work that way, all right? When something hurts us, it, it it hurts us, okay? And we kind of put it in its compartment, and we don't really want to deal with it anymore. Maybe we'll avoid people, or maybe we'll handle it in our own way. But when it comes to, like, how'd that make you feel, guys just don't have an answer because we've really just never taken the time to think about it. That's why in community groups sometimes there are just questions that even when we put them on the page, I'm like, this is a total girl question. There's not a guy in the room that's going to be able to answer it because they've just never thought about it. I don't know how that made me feel. Um and so one of the things that we prayed for tonight in, in prayer uh, before the ring, uh, we prayed for all the guys that were here. And not that we're going to have this big cry fest when it's over with, all right, guys? Your masculinity will be intact when we leave, I promise you. Um, but we did pray that you would not immediately throw walls up as soon as you hear the word hurt, feelings, past, you know, whatever, okay? Um, but another thing, and maybe this is is the biggest one, is just any time you start talking about your past and things that have hurt you, um, you have learned, for the most part, to cope with that. And so in a lot of ways, you, you've now created distance between that area of your life and, and other people. And it's not exactly something you can access very easily emotionally. Um, and so there are just a lot of walls up when we start talking about things in our past that have hurt us. 
And so those are some of the things that we prayed about before everybody came in tonight. Um, we have a 30-minute block of time where we pray all over the room every Sunday that anybody can come to. And uh, usually I'll tell them what we're talking about, and we'll just pray about it. And uh, so th this room has been prepared for those things tonight. And God's Spirit has definitely gone ahead of us and is preparing the way. And so we're going to look at the story of Joseph. So if you've got a Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 37. And I'm aware that, you know, it hurts from the past. It may, we may be talking about something that happened yesterday. We may also be talking about something that happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago or longer. Um, let's just have a real open, an open heart and an open mind to whatever God wants to deal with us tonight. Genesis chapter 37, um, we see uh, our friend Joseph, all right? Um, Joseph is the youngest of 12 boys, okay? Um, and just so happens that he's also daddy's favorite. And he he's the favorite probably because he's the youngest, and we all know that the youngest are always favored, no matter how much parents say that they're not. Um, and, and all the youngest are like, that's right. <laughs> huh, all you youngins. Um, so he's the youngest of 12, his dad was kind of old, kind of older when they had him. And so there's just a special place in his dad's heart for his youngest son, Joseph. Um, and so because he was favored, all the other brothers were jealous of him. And, of course, the, the thing that Joseph, one of the things he's most famous for is he got this really pretty coat. All right. And his dad gave him this coat, you know, the coat of many colors. Or mine says it was ornamented, uh, richly ornamented robe. Um, so he got this like snazzy robe from his dad and I guess they're jealous of that maybe. Um, and, and so, but his, his brothers were jealous of the favor that his dad showed to him. And so Joseph, he, he had this, th these two dreams that basically were all about how his brothers and his whole family were going to bow down to him. And he maybe shouldn't have done this, but he went and told them and they didn't like it very much. And it just made their jealousy more and more angry and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, so um, his brothers are out tending sheep. His dad sends them to go find out how they're doing and come back and report it to him. And then we get to see exactly what happened to Joseph that would have been his like, hurtful situation. Look at verse 18. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Right? Great brotherhood here in this family. Um, it says when Reuben, okay, so this is the, the oldest brother, all right? When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Tomorrow, throw him into, this, into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So he's going to go back and get him later on. Everything will be fine. So, jo so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw, it, threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. 
Apparently, Reuben was not around for this next part. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his, his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came up, uh, came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's, Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the, the robe in the blood. And they took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, In mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. And so his father wept for him. Okay. Um, so obviously, uh, you know, here are your brothers. And I would imagine that even though they didn't like him and they probably picked on him and stuff like that, there's a, a certain degree in every family of where you look up to the older, like your older brothers and sisters, you know. There's just, it's just a natural kind of part of, of how it works. So he had 11 people ahead of him in line. People he had watched grow up. He had watched them, you know, learn how to do stuff. He had learned how to do stuff from them. There was, like, can you can you imagine what it would be like to have your own brothers turn on you like that, and to sell you into slavery and, and not care what happened to you or, or whatever, you know, and to come up with a plot to trick your dad into thinking that an animal killed you. Now imagine when it what that's like for a 17-year-old young man to go through emotionally. So he gets sold to these people. They, um, they sell him to this guy named Potiphar, who was uh, a big-time Egyptian official, all right? Now, Joseph uh, was like he knew what he was doing, and he basically just had the favor of God on him his entire life. And so Potiphar eventually put him in charge of his household, um, just gave him the run of the entire place, and uh, he just rose to this position of authority within this guy's house. Um, Mrs. Potiphar um, kind of had uh, sweet eyes for Joseph, and she kept trying to, like, you know, sweet talk him a little bit, and he said no, and she tried again, and he said no. Finally, she tricked him and set him up to make him look like he was trying to do something he didn't need to be doing, and he got thrown in jail. And in prison, he had favor with the warden there, and he became like the head prisoner over all the other prisoners, all right? So he's there in prison, and he's got all this favor, and he's helping run the prison or whatever. And um, these two guys who work for the Pharaoh get thrown in, and, um, you know, they're all distraught because they had these great jobs, and they offended the Pharaoh, so they got thrown into prison. They thought they were going to die. They each had these two dreams. They're like, we have these dreams. We don't know what they mean. And so Joseph was like, well... God will give you the interpretation. What was your dream? So they each tell him. He tells him what the dreams mean. The dreams come true. 
And the dream is that they're both going to get out of the prison. One's going to go back to work for Pharaoh. One's going to get his head cut off. And they, the dreams came true. Well, the one who survived um, went, on, went back to work for Pharaoh, right? So Pharaoh starts having these dreams that he doesn't understand. He brings in all his, like, you know, wizards and stuff or whatever and uh, starts telling you know, tell the dream. And they don't know what it means. And the guy that worked for Pharaoh was like, hey, when I was in prison, um, there's this guy, this prisoner down there, and he knew, uh, I told him my dream, and he told me exactly what was going to happen. So Pharaoh was like, bring him here. So they get him cleaned up, bring him to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh tells him his dream. Joseph tells him, all right, this is what it means. And this sets the stage for what's about to happen. Um, this is what the dream meant. There were going to be seven years of incredible prosperity in Egypt. Just more like more grain and like wealth and everything than they could possibly imagine. But the main thing was about food, tons of food for seven years. But then there were going to be seven years of famine. And the famine was going to be so bad that they would forget about all the prosperity. I mean, it was, it was going to devastate them and it would basically wipe them from the face of the earth. And so Joseph said, so here's what you need to do. During the seven years of prosperity, you need to store up and you need to stockpile food during that time. That enough food to last you the seven bad years. And so Pharaoh's like, all right, well, I need somebody to be in charge of this, so you're in charge of it. So Joseph goes from being in charge of the prison to now being in charge of basically the entire uh, nation, and he's basically second in command to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, other than the throne, you have every all the authority that I have, all right? So this happened when he was 30, all right? So he had 12 or 13 years of, of sitting on this betrayal by his brothers, all right, and having to deal with this and the ups and downs of being in a good house and then all of a sudden going to prison. And now you're like all this kind of stuff. And in the midst of all that, he's got this betrayal, not knowing what happened to his dad, not knowing, you know, whatever happened, you know, all that kind of stuff. So when he's 30, he comes into this position. So for seven years, uh, he's running the show, and he's stockpiling all this food, and he's making sure all the cities are, are saving up. And sure enough, at the end of that seven years, when he's 37, um, the, the famine hits, and it starts in the surrounding lands, and they have no food. And Egypt's okay for a little while, but then it starts to hit them. And when it hits them, everybody just says, that's why we've been storing all this food all the time. So Joseph is in charge of who gets to pull from the rations that they have, right? So... That brings us all the way. You can flip over to chapter 45. Okay. So two years into this uh, time of famine, Joseph, by my estimates, would be 39, according to the different ages that it gives in the story. All right. So he's 39. It's been 21, 22 years since uh, his brothers sold him as a slave and all this kind of stuff. Okay. Now. Let's let's just for a second try and think about what it would be like for over 20 years to have that hurt building in your heart. To have something that happened to you when you were a teenager every day kind of eat away at you. And and there's no there's no scriptural evidence for this, but I I wonder Something as emotionally traumatic as that, if he was ever, if there was a day that went by that he didn't somehow think about it. When he was 30, he got married and he had two kids. And he named one of his kids um, Manasseh, which means forget. 
So he names his kid something that is symbolic of, of him like trying to, to get over this. For I've forgotten about what, what happened. But do you think that's really possible? I mean, I, in just preparing for tonight, I mean, I can go back. I can tell you things when I was in kindergarten that hurt me, you know, and that was not yesterday. <laughs> I can tell you specifics. I can tell you what people were wearing. I can tell you the words that I had teachers use, coaches. I can tell you the tone of their voice. I mean, just detailed stuff. I don't know that he was was really able to escape that. And, you know, for us, I, I don't know that any of us have, made, have been in the same situation as Joseph. Seems kind of dramatic. But we all have things that, that we carry around with us. You know, maybe, maybe you have abandonment issues and you didn't even know it. You know? Maybe you had a parent walk out when you were little. Maybe you had two parents walk out when you were little. Maybe there's maybe there's a, abuse in your background. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. Maybe you got talked down to your entire life growing up. Maybe maybe you have trust issues because people that you at one time trusted completely um, gave you, they broke your trust, basically. Maybe maybe in church life, there was a pastor or youth minister or a Sunday school teacher or some, some adult that you just, you held in such high regard that had some sort of moral failure or something happened and that had a devastating effect on you. Maybe you're just betrayed. Maybe there are are people that you thought, I'm going to grow old and die being friends with these people. And something happened and they betrayed you. They stabbed you in the back. I mean, we could go example after example after example. I think we all carry around these scars that life just kind of brings. And it's something that, that we don't escape. You know, none of us is an exception to that. Like, life hurts sometimes. People hurt each other sometimes. And the fallenness of man is just seen constantly. And we're not here tonight to say that, oh, that stuff they did is okay or whatever. And and I don't believe that this is a time where God's going to, like, completely just, like, drop this bomb into the room and everybody's going to walk out completely healed of all these hurts and stuff. I think that, um, to quote the great theologian Shrek, I think that the dealing with hurt, it's like an onion. It really is. And I think that, that there are hurts that we have, if left unaddressed, they just continue to grow. And there are layers and layers of bitterness and anger and resentment and all this stuff that grows on top of it. And I think God wants to start peeling those things away. I think what God wants tonight is is to start something in our hearts. So you can just rest assured we're not going to turn it into this emotional manipulative, manipulative time where we're going to play just the right songs and just the right speed and just the right way and try to get all the men in here to cry. We're not going to do that, okay? But I want to look in chapter 45 
and how Joseph dealt with the hurt that he had carried around for 20 years and see what, what we can pull from it. And to tell you the truth, there's, there's two points. One of them is long and the other one is super short. Let's look at what he said. Let me flip over. So here's what, what happens. There's this famine, right? One day, these eleven guys, these sorry, these ten guys walk in. And there's Joseph, the man in charge of the food. Ten guys walk in, and they're like, "Hey, we need some food." And they don't recognize him, but he knows who they are. Those are his ten brothers. The youngest one was not there, Benjamin. And so he, like, I mean, imagine 20 years not knowing what happened, all this kind of stuff, and all of a sudden you come face-to-face with the people that hurt you, the people that betrayed you, that did this unthinkable thing, all right? They don't recognize him. So he accuses them of being spies. They're like, we're not spies and everything. And what happens is they bow down to him, which is exactly what his dream said would happen. And he knew it was them. So basically he starts testing them, and he, he sends them all back, but he keeps one of them to bring Benjamin back and all this kind of stuff. And you, it's a couple of chapters of him basically testing, uh, just testing them to see if, if their hearts are right. Um, a lot of commentaries talk about the difference between remorse and repentance, and how you can see that in his brothers and everything. But basically in chapter 45, um, he, he's had enough of, of trying to, search their hearts and test them, all this kind of stuff. They still have no idea who he is. And finally, he, he just can't take it anymore. I mean, they, they, they'll bring up stuff, and there's times in the story where he'll have to leave the room because he's so emotionally wrapped up. He has to go somewhere else to cry because this pain has started to surface. And in chapter 45, he, he can't take it anymore. And this is what he says. It says, Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. All right, here's, here's the thing. How did Joseph deal with his hurt? He, he processed his experience theologically all right that's an ugly point that does not sound good it does not flow but that's that's the only thing i can think of he processed his experience theologically look at what he says joseph said to his brothers come close to me and when they had done so he said i am your brother joseph the one you sold into egypt and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household. And ruler of all Egypt. Okay? He processed his experience theologically. And here's what, I, here's what I'm saying. A lot of times we don't, we don't take our, our theological perspective and lay that over the top of our lives in order to understand what's going on. Okay? For example, 
we will we we struggle we mess up and we're repenting and we're praying and we say god please just please forgive me of what i did yet our theological perspective is that our sins are forgiven See how those two things don't necessarily line up? Theologically, we believe Jesus died on the cross, took care of everything. But yet, when we pray, we're asking him to forgive us when he's already done it. It doesn't make sense. You know, We believe that, that God has the power to do anything, to change any human life, to, to change any circumstance. And, and so we'll believe that in, in one breath, but yet we work so hard to try to come up with our own plans for stuff instead of trusting him. See, what we, what we claim to believe theologically and what, we, what actually goes on in our experiences a lot of times are very different. And so what we have to do is we have to take our theological perspective and what we believe about God and what we believe God's Word says about Him, and we have to take that, and it's within the context of those beliefs do we interpret what is happening to us and what has happened to us. That's an, that's an important thing to do. That's... That's how, like, mature, like, followers of Christ deal with what's going on in life. Is you, is you don't, you, you take the circumstances and your emotions, all this kind of stuff, and, and you kind of, you put them over here, and you take God's word, the standard, and, and that becomes, like, how we understand what's going on. So in Joseph's situation, the sovereignty of God God's plan for the the earth, God's plan for carrying out the covenant that his ancestors were a part of, the Abrahamic covenant, God's sovereignty and his ability to 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 control everything and that his plan was going to move forward, that trumped the sin of his brothers. And he was able to see God's hand at work and God's faithfulness at, at work and and that became like that's how he interpreted what was going on. I'm sure that he he had all kinds of I'm sure he was angry, I'm sure he was frustrated, I'm sure he was confused. I'm sure he hated them for a long long time, but at this point in this in the story where we're able to see what's going on, he looks the, his betrayers in the eye, his own flesh and blood and he's like, "Don't be angry at yourself. God had a plan for this." He's like, "I am who I am today and I'm in the position that I am today because of what you did." Now Please do not hear me say, if you're sitting here and you were abused when you were young, saying like, yeah, it's okay what that person did to you because look at who you are today. It's not what I'm saying. It's not excusing sin. It's not saying that them betraying him, what they did to him is okay. It's not saying what people have done to you is okay. But what I am saying is, okay, it happened. The hurts that we experience, they happen to us. And so we have to bring those things to God and say, God, what in the world am I supposed to make of this? At some point, God showed him, look, look, look at the favor that's been on your life ever since then. And because of this, this led to this and this. Look how I am able to make everything work together for my glory. And I'm sure at some point, I'm sure God had to bring him from all those emotions to the point where he can look him in the eye and say, hey, look, this is where we are. It happened, but God is still God. And that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing for me to say. 
And there's a lot of questions I have, you know. It's like, why, why is there injustice? Why do all these terrible things happen? Why, like, just why, why I have, a, and not an answer will do. And I think that's how God wants it. God wants us to bring our experiences to him and say, God, what in the world am I supposed to make of this? We bring those abandonment issues. We bring those abuse issues, betrayal, trust, whatever it is, those big wounds that we have that we like to pretend aren't there. We have to bring them to him and say, what in the world am I supposed to make of this? And, and I don't, who knows what he's going to tell you? First church I ever worked for, um, I got betrayed by the pastor. And then he lied to the congregation. And, I mean, there's all this stuff. And even in preparing for this, I just realized, like, if that dude walked in the gym tonight, I, I'd have some issues. And I was in this position where people were asking me what's going on, and, and like I either just like he's a liar, or I have to just like eh, yeah, kind of. And and so there's to this day there's all these awkward relationships I have because people think one thing happened and I don't know what to say and all this kind of stuff. And even as I talk about it, I'm just getting riled up because I'm just like. And so I'm thinking about it today, and I'm watching the Saints game, and I'm like watching the Saints game, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm sweating because both, you know, and I'm like I don't know what's going on. And then the same thing happened. God was like, okay, let's, let's watch the timeline of your life. That happened, which led to you going to Zor, which led to all these things, which led to you coming to Parkview, which happened to all these things, which then brought you to the ring. And now people that you knew at all those churches are a part of this church now. God's like, maybe I'm able to take this poor church leadership situation and this mismanagement, mishandling, whatever, and make something good come out of it for you. Maybe so. Do you think for just a second that I'm sovereign, that I know what I'm doing? I know that's a different situation than abuse and all that kind of stuff. And that's why it's so beautiful that we have a personal relationship with God, that you can go and sit down with him and say, here's my situation. This is my hurt. I've been carrying around for a long time. I hate my uncle. I hate my aunt. I hate my grandparent. I hate just the list goes on and on and on and on. This friend betrayed me. This person abandoned me. All these things that's going on, and you bring that to him, and he speaks into your life what you need to hear. And you take your theological perspective and believing that he is sovereign and he is all-powerful and that Romans 8.28 really is true, that he really does in all things work it together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that he gets glory out of every situation. You take that perspective, that your theological viewpoint on how God is, uh, on, on how he works and who he is, and you lay it over the top of that situation, and you say, God, what am I supposed to do with this? The thing is... Stop pretending it's not there. Because in some some of you here tonight, we're talking about situations happened a long time ago. Some of you, we're talking about people that you're sharing this gym with tonight. Some we're talking about people that, that you have their email address, their number's in your phone, your Facebook friends with them. I mean, we're talking like it's much more like personal. And, and so how it applies to your life, I don't really know. 
We see Joseph took his theological perspective and processed his experience, and God brought him to the point where he could tell them, hey, it's okay. The second thing that he did, the second point, it's really quick. He's, he applied what he learned. All right? For him, this is, what, this is what he told him. Look at verse 9. It says, Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God's made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it's really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you've seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Look at this. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. See, after he had processed all this, he applied what he had learned. He told his brothers exactly what was going on. And so for him, the application was the restoration of those relationships. His bitterness didn't take over. He didn't try to get revenge, whatever. He applied what his his theological perspective and all that processing helped him make sense of it. Now, for you, it may be different. For you, the people or the circumstances or whatever surrounding the hurts that you've experienced, it might not be possible for you to reconcile with them. It might not even be necessarily what God's calling you to do. There are some abusive situations where I really wouldn't say, hey, go, yeah, go knock on their door and talk to them. But maybe for you, maybe it is, maybe it is a conversation you need to have. Maybe it is a phone call that you need to make. Maybe the, maybe this needs to become something that you're more focused in praying about. Maybe you need to, to talk to uh, the staff here about counseling. Maybe something happened to you years ago and you bottled it up and you hadn't even, you've tried every day to not think about it, but you definitely haven't talked about it in years. Maybe, maybe in this story you're not Joseph. Maybe you're one of the brothers. Maybe you are the betrayer. You're the abandoner. You're the abuser. And your obedience will be very different. But I believe the starting point for all of us is kind of like that song that we sing. It says, you never let go. It's for us to realize. And those times when, when, we're, when we're hurt, whether it's yesterday or years ago, you lay your theological beliefs over the top of that experience, and you know what? There was not a second of it that went by that God was not there with you. And that may make you angry. That may confuse you. But what an amazing truth that in those moments when you were being hurt, God was crying with you.
I mean, to experience the fact that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and rescues those who are crushed in spirit. To be able to look back at those experiences and say, you never let go of me. In the times when it hurt the most, you just clutched me tighter. He was there every second. And so maybe what, maybe the application tonight is really just to respond to the grace and the love of God. And the fact that you are who you are today, and that was a part of it. God's done something beautiful with your life, and that was a part of it. That he has redeemed you from things, and that's a part of it. That your sins are forgiven, and that's a part of it. That he's restored you, and you are reconciled, and you are holy and blameless and without blemish, and all that stuff that is a part of your life. Um, God's grace right there for you, for me. And so I don't know, I don't know what this has to do with your life. I don't know why tonight God would have us be so specific. And I wonder if, as we've been talking, maybe God's been stirring you up, and you're like, wow, I hate that person. I had no idea. I had no idea I was bitter. I know that God does not stir our hearts and get specific without a reason. And so we just have to be responsible with that. Let's, let's pray together.